I'm Brooke Gurley, and you are listening to Untold Stories, the cases that shaped the civil rights movement, presented by Law and Crime. This podcast is the audio adaptation of my video series titled The Untold Stories of the Civil Rights Movement. And now, on to this week's episode. What's up, everyone? It's me, Brooke. Welcome back to my page, my YouTube page, Facebook page, Instagram, wherever you have found me. I'm so glad you are here for part eight of the Untold series, where I look at some of the most important or what I think are the most important civil rights cases. I discuss and break them down and let you know why I think they're important, what you can learn from them. So let's get into this week's episode. Okay, this week we're looking at the famous or infamous Scottsboro Boys case. Now, if you have not heard about them directly, you've definitely been informed by them because it is the story, the real story, that um, inspired Harper Lee to write To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, with the beloved Atticus and all of that and Tom Robinson. Or was it Tim Robinson? I may have to read that book again. But anyway, this is the true story behind To Kill a Mockingbird. So let's get into it. So this week is actually going to be kind of a two-part so this will be the first part this week and the next week we'll finish up because the Scottsboro Boys case um, ended with two Supreme Court cases which is just wild like one case led to two very important Supreme Court cases in the 1930s that involved these black boys so let's get into the facts shall we yes it started on March 25th 1931 and so we're in the depression people are looking for work and what you had going on during this period is you had young people who would hop on trains illegally they didn't pay for it freight trains and are hoboing and they would ride different places trying to find work so that's that was going on i think the train started in tennessee and it cut through alabama they're in alabama a fight breaks out between um white boys and black boys. What happened is one of the white boys stepped on the hand of one of the black boys and the fight broke out. And um, the white boys did not win this fight. In fact, they got thrown off the train, like literally thrown off the train. Some jumped off um, by, <laughs> because they were going to be put off by the black boys. They get upset. It is, you know, they did lose the fight, but it, they're still white men in 1930s Alabama. So they call the sheriff, the sheriff's let the people know down the line, you know, when you get to this next stop, which was in Scarsboro or thereabout, um, that you need to arrest these black boys who threw these white boys off the train. And that's where trouble hit. So the train stops at the next stop, the police come in, the posse come in, they're looking for these black boys. Somehow in the melee of all of that, these two white women emerge, um, Ruby Bates and Victoria Price. and I don't know if it was originally their idea or the sheriff or what had happened, but the two white women ended up accusing these black boys, these nine black boys, the Scarsboro boys, of rape. Now, the thing is, this case is very similar to, to the Central Park Five because these boys didn't really know each other. Four of them knew each other because like two were brothers, but for the most part, they didn't know each other. They were just there on the train looking for work and they were accused. Um, but unlike in the Central Park case where there was actually someone who was sexually assaulted, these two women were not. They were just lying because had they been caught, um, they too could have gotten in trouble and gotten arrested because they were on the train freeloading, hoboing. Um, and so they were trying to escape or evade uh, arrest. Now the thing is, both Ruby and Victoria were poor white women. These are white women who grew up next to black people, so all of the social norms of the South didn't really apply to them because when you're really poor, then you're just, <laughs> you're equal to 
black people at this time and really probably presently. Um, so socioeconomics were very important, but it's not more important than race. So they knew that if they um, would say that these black boys raped them, then they would be given dignity that they otherwise didn't have as poor white women in the South. And so in the first case, and I'm just going for part one, I'm just talking about the first case that goes up to the Supreme Court and kind of what happens after that. But in the first case, the boys, the, um, this happened March 25th, 1931. The trial was in April. Um, because it was so quick, they didn't really have time to communicate with their family members to try to get a lawyer to represent them. They, <laughs> during the arraignment, the judge orders all the local bar, which is seven members, to represent the boys um, who wanted to during arraignment. But it wasn't clear who was going to be their lawyer and blah, blah, blah. It was a confusing state. What ended up happening is during the day of trial, um, the boys had never, and the boys, by the way, were from 19 to 13. So some of them really, there were two 13-year-olds who were boys, but you had young men. During the day of the trial for the first one, um, the judge, it still wasn't clear who exactly was the attorney. And this is important for what happens at the Supreme Court. It was not clear who represented the, the young men because they really hadn't been in, no one had been in communication with them since the arraignment. And um, what ended up happening is even though the judge assigned the, the case to everybody at the local bar, because this is before public defenders and all of that, that had not been established as much later on. But only one person really wanted to represent the boys. His name was Milo Moody. He was like a drunk, 70-some, almost 70-year-old, slightly senile person, just the worst possible <laughs> attorney that you could have. He agreed to take the case. And then there was another attorney, I guess someone, one of the defendant's family members asked this Tennessee attorney to come down and help out, but he was a real estate attorney and he dabbled a little bit maybe in some police law. So neither one were prepared. They spent 30 minutes before trial, 30, yeah, 30 minutes total before trial talking to their client. Um, it was a disaster. And as you can imagine, it ended with the men being convicted. When they were convicted, um, their case became this national outcry. Just again, how history repeats itself. We have a similar thing going on here, but for a different reason. But the um, injustice that was going on because of these false accusations, these black boys being convicted of a crime that they didn't commit. And um, you had sort of different opportunist groups within America going on. Yet um, one of which was the International Labor Defense, which was the Communist Party, and they had a legal arm. And they reached out and decided to help them. Um, and so they eventually appealed the case to the United States Supreme Court. And this is a case was Powell versus Alabama. The defendants um, proposed a couple of reasons why they felt like their case should be overturned. One, going back to the jury, black people were excluded. Another one, they were denied a fair trial altogether, just the process. And then of course, that they didn't have um, adequate counsel and therefore their due process um, rights were violated the issue. So the court didn't actually deal with the issue of the jury. Instead, the court focused on the uh, having adequate counsel and whether or not their counsel was so inept that it was a violation of their due process. The holding, the court ruled, yes, absolutely, they were denied. That was a violation of due process. And um, what the court does is go through kind of the transcript of the trial and they speak about 
um, how there was some equivocation about who was going to represent who the the um, the defendant, and so the court said, no, this is you. In order to have due process, you must have adequate um, right to counsel, and this was not given. Therefore, it was a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment due process clause. Now, this case did not say that you have a right to counsel no matter what. That's it's close. It's coming close to saying that, but it didn't quite get there. That comes later with Gideon versus Wainwright in the 1960s. But this case is saying though, you, in order to have a fair trial, in order to have due process, you deserve to have adequate counsel. And that was denied here. And because it was denied here, you were denied due process. Therefore, the case was overturned. Now, why is this case important? I think it's important for one, a few reasons. One, it inspired um, one of the most remarkable pieces of literature in American history, To Kill a Mockingbird, a favorite. Obviously, I also think it's important because it, it shows how a system can railroad the poor, the young, the vulnerable of society. And even in the face of evidence to the contrary, whatever it is, they will still push an agenda because they're more set on their own position, they're more set on consistency, you know, maintaining what was than they are about justice and how justice is easily lost and obscured in a system that's supposed to get justice. It's remarkable to me how similar the Scottsboro Boys case is to the Central Park Five, where you had prosecutors there in the Scottsboro Boys really set on getting these boys, even when it's clear, if you're just listening, that the young women are lying. What they said happened is just not what happened. But the prosecutor was more concerned about really establishing and firming up social norms around race than they were about justice. In the Central Park Five case, you had these young boys who are contradicting each other, which is similar to what happened with Scottsboro boys. They were afraid and they were just trying to point the finger at anybody else but themselves. Same thing happened here. Boys who don't know each other, pointing the finger at each other because they just want to go home. And a system, if it was halfway awake, it would be apparent to them that that's what hap that's is what's going on here that these boys are not rapists but they are scared and they're just trying to be free and but you have a prosecutor who even to this day even though DNA evidence shows that they had nothing to do with it is still hell bent on saying no they still must have had something to do with it and um, justice is lost it's obscured and thankfully the United States Supreme Court here overturned the case um, that wasn't necessarily the case with the Central Park Five, but thankfully they are out of jail now. I think that's important for us to keep in mind that sometimes the system is more concerned with maintaining itself than justice. And when I say sometimes, I mean most of the time. <laughs> okay, if you are interested or if you want to learn more about this remarkable case and maybe even get ahead of us for next week, there are two resources that I have for you, at least two. Of course, I have to go back to Black Trials. It's such a great book. I'm telling you, it's a classic. It should be in everybody's household. And I've kind of made friends with the author, so it's really cool. <laughs> um, and then this is a great documentary. It's called Scottsboro Boys, An American Tragedy. Um, I know people don't have DVDs. I bought this like... 11 years ago so don't judge me but it's a great documentary you can find it on YouTube 
Um, that's where I found it to to watch it again because it's just such a remarkable story the whole entire thing and the way that it is depicted here in the documentary and the way that it is depicted and you can read it here it's just like a novel that you just can't put down and it's just like a fascinating uh, thriller case um, so definitely check out both of these the documentary and of course this is our textbook for the untold series let's just call it what it is there's our textbook if you like this video, please be sure to hit the like button below on whatever platform you're watching this. Um, be, please be sure to subscribe to my YouTube page, to my Facebook page, which is Polyphys World Productions, to my Instagram page if you haven't already, my Twitter. Also subscribe to my blog if you haven't, PolyphysWorld.com. Please be sure to come back next week when I talk about part two of the Scottsboro Boys case. It's a very important issue. It's jury selection. I'm telling y'all. The case that's going on right now with um, George Floyd and the police officers, who is on that jury is going to be so critical. And I guarantee you that the defense is going to try to knock out as many minorities as they possibly can. I'm willing to bet money. And it is a long history that is deeply rooted in American society where they try to keep us off altogether. And we can't let that happen. But we'll talk about that next week. Until then, you all take care. Be safe. If you're out there protesting, I support you. I'm happy that you all are doing what you have to do to get justice. Um, but be safe from everything that's going on because there's still a pandemic. And I will see you next week. Take care and God bless. This week's episode was produced and narrated by me. Special thanks to Brian Gurley for the use of his music and for mixing the audio. To watch the video series that inspired this podcast, head over to my blog, palookiesworld.com, and make sure you subscribe. For more information on the series, like how do you spell Paluki, please check out the show notes. Finally, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you never miss an episode.